Good morning. If you enjoyed thinking about heaven this morning, thinking about what is next, what the Lord has in store. You know, songs like we've sung today, and I, I think probably even like the, the choir uh, sung this morning, uh, oftentimes were written in a, in a day in which people were looking for hope, uh, real hope, not, not the kind of hope like, I hope it's a nice weather, not that kind of hope, but just a real confident assurance of a hope that God has a plan, uh, not only in this lifetime, but in the one that is, uh, uh, that is still yet to come. If you read some of the songs that, uh, that were written, uh, I'm thinking even back to some of the spirituals that uh, that were written uh, many years ago, "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot," songs like that. That you know they they were they were written in a time of difficulty, weren't they? A time of distress in which people needed hope. They needed to have reminders that this this world and what we have here isn't all that that God provides. And we may be in a very similar day today. Uh, different than some of the other struggles that our nation has had. Yes, different than other struggles that, that we've seen across the world. But yet, nonetheless, this is a day of struggle. In fact, if I were to ask you this morning, who is one of the most famous American preachers of all time? What, what name would, would come to mind? I think everybody just about said Billy Graham, right? Yeah, my name didn't come up at all, which I, I wasn't even thinking it either, you know. But, uh, but yeah, Billy Graham, he, he's the one. I, how many years, like six decades of ministry and uh, the, 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 uh, the counselor to, to, to a number of presidents, an advisor and an and, and encourager, a supporter. Let me, let me read, I, you know, he's uh, 97 years old now, 97. But let me, let me, let me... Uh, let me read some words that, that, that he wrote. This is what he wrote. He said, The moral and spiritual decadence upon us today becomes evident at every turn of our daily newspaper. We live in a day when old values are rejected and the sense of significance and purpose has disappeared from many people's lives. Yes, we need to cry out to be saved, saved from ourselves. Listen to what he says. For it is the soul of a nation and a culture that is dying. The world is on a moral binge such as was not known even in the days of Rome. We have at our fingertips every pleasure that man is capable of enjoying. And man has abused every gift God ever gave him. Until he no longer finds joy and satisfaction in them. End quote. Do you think Billy Graham has it right on that? Just look around at our age and see, uh, see what is happening. Now, what, what's interesting about this quote is that it's not a recent one. He, he wrote those words in 1965, over 50 years ago. And we think what has happened even in those 50 years, if he were to write these words again, what he might say. This morning, we're going to pause from our current series in the book of Acts. We've been going through the opening chapters in Acts, and I appreciate so much Brad Canalejo for preaching in Acts chapter 4 last week. Uh, so grateful for, uh, uh, for him filling in for me. And uh, we'll pick back up in Acts in a couple of weeks, but, uh, but I think it's appropriate for us to, to take some time this morning to think about the current state of our nation. It's an important season that we're in. And it's important for us as believers to consider uh, from time to time what, what is going on. How do we make sense of 
what we see? How do we respond? How do we, how do we understand it through the lens of Scripture? These will be questions addressed this morning. I know some are thinking, well, that seems like a rather depressing way to spend our time. We've had such good uplifting songs and music already this morning. And, and now we're going to talk about the state of our nation. And I, I get that. I, I, I understand that. But I also know that, that, that the church must not lose its prophetic voice in any season. But particularly a season like, like today. Uh, we need to we need to think carefully about what is going on around us uh, so that we can we can understand so that we can prepare the next generation and so that we can respond uh, in a very prophetic way. In fact, if you if you look through scriptures, you will you will see that that the Bible spoke to the days in which it was written uh, throughout the, the ages, including I'm thinking of of some of the prophets of old speaking to to the times in which they lived. Thinking of Jesus speaking to the times, particularly of, of the nation of Israel and the spiritual condition. But he was speaking to the times. And you saw, you can see even in the Apostle Paul's writing, you know, again, recognizing the times, speaking to them. Because if we're not careful, what could happen? We could get swept up in the thinking of the day. And so I hope that the message this morning will be one that will, will help us uh, Maybe have a, a greater uh, level of understanding of what we're seeing, but I, I also pray that it'll it will help in making a difference with the young people among us, because think of the world that they are inheriting. You could think about this from a lot of perspectives, but uh, I want us to begin by thinking about the moral and spiritual crisis that our nation is facing. In fact, it affects every area of our society. How does the moral collapse affect our home, marriage, and family? How is our community and schools and workplaces being affected? What are the symptoms that we see? I think one thing that, that, that could be on that list would be violence. We see violence even in a in a in a in a culture and a society that is sophisticated and advanced there's still conflict and tension i was speaking with one of our church members that was out of town this weekend and from the uh from the apart from the hotel window looking out over the the city that they were in at night and seeing mass violence and shooting and and uh and and chaos ensuing and 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 that's not a unique story is it In fact, it's not even just violence against one another, but even against those who have taken the duty to protect us, that they themselves, their badges have become targets. Who would have ever thought that we would see that in this day and age? We mentioned terrorism, and I know when we think of terrorism, oftentimes we we think of it on on, on foreign soil, which, of course, it does happen in greater numbers in the on, on in foreign lands but is it happening here have we not ourselves been been uh, been victimized by terrorism and even islamic radical terrorism with with uh, with with uh, with violence and and uh, mass murders and you realize we've even had beheadings in our own country state of oklahoma being one of those examples and so, yes, there is terrorism. We think again about morality, the sexual ethics of our nation 
are there any left? And it, 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 it includes so much. It, it, thinking of things like fornication and adultery and pornography and homosexuality. Even the marriage institution being redefined. Gender issues, the God-given gender identities going all the way back to the opening chapters of Scripture, God creating male and female, now being questioned and even rejected. We think about life, human life. You can think about life at, at the end of, of, a, of, of a person's life or the sacredness of life even at the beginning. We still live in a country that allows unborn babies to be killed in their mother's womb. And we've even witnessed the criminal harvesting and selling of body parts of these little ones. There's so much that I know we could get numb, but just stop and think about what is happening. Religious liberty is something that was very important at the inception of our nation. And now we have laws developing that will impact even a church's ministry, threatening even its pulpit, because these laws, many of them called accommodation laws, are threatening the message. You may remember there was a time in which the the city of Houston, Texas, wanted some pastors to turn over their sermons. One of those pastors had fled here from Vietnam and remembered what it was like when there wasn't religious freedom. And now him living here, being asked to submit sermons. This last week it happened again in the state of Georgia. And I suppose it will become more and more common. I've always said I've got a few I'll be willing to submit. <laughs> I may pick through them and kind of pick out the ones that, I, that I'd like to share. Um, some of them probably aren't worth sharing, right? <laughs> I remember when I first started preaching, I had, uh, had a pastor that was kind of a mentor to me. He told me, he said, you know, Ryan, he said, don't throw away those sermon notes. He said, uh, if a sermon's worth preaching once, it's, it's, it may be worth preaching again. He said, now, some of them weren't worth preaching the first time. <laughs> so I, I've had a lot of those. David Jeremiah said it this way. He said, serious people are asking this question. If these things are happening today, what will the future be like for my children and grandchildren? Do current headlines give us any signs about what is coming next? Let me add one more to the list of symptoms we've developed about this nation in crisis. And the phrase I've used is a turning away from the Lord. And if you want to read the statistics, you can go to Pew Research. And they have developed a new category of belief that's called the religious nuns. And I need to spell that for you because we're not talking about, about N-U-N, right? We're talking about N-O-N-E, saying they have no religious affiliation. In the 80s, it was about one out of ten people that would have said no, no belief, no affiliation, um, one in ten would have, would have, would have, would have, would have uh, whether it's ag- agnostic or atheist, it's just no, no spiritual belief. None. You know what that number is today? It's closer to one out of four. 
23%. We're talking about from the 70s and 80s to today. In fact, there's, there's new research just showing how, how common. And you know that that's the case just in conversations, just in seeing what's, what's promoted in our, in our culture, in our entertainment industry, in the mainstream media. You, you know, you know that it's got to be at least that high. But I believe that statistic alone helps describe the soul of our nation as it's increasingly turning away from the Lord and his word. Brings up a lot of questions, questions that I that I haven't even really addressed yet that that may be on people's minds today. Questions related to terrorism or safety and security Questions related to morality. How do we define what is right and what is wrong when we, when we lose that moral compass? Who is it for, for you or for me to say what is right or what is wrong? That's the, that's the dialogue of the day. Questions relate to the future of our nation, which is now how many trillion dollars in debt? Does anybody know? 19 to 20 trillion dollars in debt. Read statistics of, of, of how fast it's accumulated. And uh, during President George W. Bush's time, the, the debt doubled. He inherited a debt of $4 trillion and took it to 9 He took it, if you think about all the previous presidents, he got it to 9 And uh, President Obama, as he was running for election, just uh, criticized him so much for, for, for what he did. It's uh, inexcusable to take the debt to that level, which, of course, under his tenure has gone from nine trillion to 20 trillion. Not to mention all of the the coming payments that are owed through programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. You start thinking of those trillions of dollars that are not debt, but that are pledged, that are promises. And it be, you begin to wonder how how can a country Hold things together financially. A lot of questions. Healthcare questions. Even the rising cost of healthcare. Have you seen the news lately on that? Increase in premiums that are that are that are uh, exorbitant. Think about the judiciary, the court system. Not to mention immigration, national security, the entertainment industry. On and on and on. Questions could be raised about the day in which we're living. Just two years ago, there was an article written, a column written called The Great Unraveling by Roger Cohen. The column begins like this. He says, it was the time of unraveling. And long afterward, in the ruins, people asked, how could it happen? And so the column goes on to give examples of it was the time of such and such, kind of like what we've done this morning and thinking about the time. But then in the end... It says this, it was a time of disorientation. Nobody connected the dots until it was too late and people could see the great unraveling for what it was and what it had wrought. Now you ask the world today what what has taken place. Some would would argue that there hasn't been an unraveling. They would say that it's been very, very much uh, growth or prog- uh, uh, progressive uh, nature of our culture. But as Christians, we see the decline morally 
and spiritually. And I would tell you that if we think about connecting the dots, that as followers of Christ, we can see that the moral decline and the spiritual decline of our nation are inextricably linked. I was going to ask if you agreed, but but you already have. Well, to make the connection even more specific, we need to consider what the Bible says, not only about morality and about right and wrong and good and evil, but we also need to look to the scriptures to look about what it says about the days in which we live. Because there is a very compelling connection between the current moral decline and biblical prophecy. Prophecy is one of the ways in which the Bible authenticates its truthful message. In fact, when Jesus came as the Messiah, you know that he came after a long line of prophets that were pointing to his arrival and giving very specific details of what it would look like, what his birth would look like, his birth location down to the city. Talk about his ministry and how he would teach, what he would do, how he would suffer, even how he would die. And of course, rise again. But all of these prophecies were given for the purpose of authenticating his identity when he arrived. Would you agree with that? We looked at those scriptures and we can see, we can connect Isaiah 53 to the, to the gospel accounts. We can connect passages out of, of other prophets that were speaking to him, even, even some out of the Psalms. It's filled with prophecies. But when Jesus lived, some recognized him as the Messiah, such as John the Baptist and others who would follow him, like his disciples and others beyond that. But there were many who didn't recognize him for who he was. And many of them were even right in the leadership positions of the religious community. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus asks a question. He said to the, to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? He was referring to the prophecies that described him. But he would also himself give prophecies that would speak of the latter days. The end times. And of course, we know that the the end times really is a period that lasts a long, long time. You can see it as the age of the church, or as we've seen in the book of Acts, the the age of the, the Holy Spirit. But we don't know how long those days will last before the second coming of Jesus is upon us. Again. There were prophecies speaking of the coming of the Messiah, but there are hundreds that speak to the fulfillment of his second coming. The question for us is whether we are comparing the ancient prophecies with the events going on around us today. We can even look at the prophecies about the nation of Israel and see what amazing uh, history, recent history has happened in 
the nation of Israel. But there are many, many more. Are we looking at the events of today through the lens of Scripture? You see, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament, and there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. And so if it's in that kind of magnitude where roughly one out of every 30 verses has a reference to his return, we don't want to be like those in the days of Jesus that weren't recognizing him as the Messiah because they were ignoring the prophecy. We need to look at it and be able to say, okay, we can look at at the events and the condition of our world and our own country, and we can see that the Scriptures speak to it. That Jesus spoke clearly about what is known as the signs of the times. I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 24. A portion of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the second longest sermon recorded in the New Testament that Jesus gave. The other one that was longer, of course, was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is also the longest prophetic section in the New Testament other than the book of Revelation. It deserves our careful attention. And when we consider the setting of the message, it even, it even magnifies its importance because Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse on the week that he would lay down his life. So among some of the last things that he would share and have recorded for us. We're going to see this morning five signs of the times. We're going to look at it. We're going to go through them rather quickly. And then we're going to think about a response for us as a church, as the people of God in this day. We know that that when we read these signs of the times, that, that they are true for every generation since the time in which Jesus was here. But we know that they become even more visible as time approaches his return. And again, I I'm not making any predictions. Because no man knows the day or the hour of his return, right? Jesus himself said that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't live in light of his coming return. And even as we take the Lord's Supper later this morning. We were going to be thinking about it in light of his return. Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to share a brief outline that comes from the book Countdown to the Apocalypse by Robert Jeffress. And he has taken these verses and and, and really categorized them into five signs. And so I'm just going to share those and we'll go through them quickly this morning. First one is this. A time of spiritual deception. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And of course, the early church dealt with that. And throughout the ages, the church has had to deal with people that were seen as as false prophets. And there will be a day in which there will be even an antichrist and the spirit of an anti of the antichrist that that uh, that comes to to counterfeit the gospel. And we see those counterfeits even in the day that we live in. 
All kinds of deception that is out there. Even oftentimes pointing to the name of Christ. And yet it may not be based upon what Scripture teaches about Christ. Spiritual deception, again, not only in that age, but even in ours. Sign two. He calls it international conflict. Look at Matthew 24, verses 6 and the first half of verse 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And again, as we read that verse, we, those verses, we could say, well, we've, we've seen that throughout history of country against country, kingdom against con- uh, kingdom. You can see that even before the days of Christ and, of course, after thinking through the ages of, of, uh, of uh, different empires that would, that would, that would rise and, and make progress and then, and then, uh, and then uh, uh, no longer have that type of, of influence in another kingdom or, or empire would rise. But we, we see even in the, the world wars of the 1900s and even the conflict that, that is out there today, that the international conflict is certainly something that we see. And if you look and study at biblical prophecy, you'll see that it will even intensify. The book of Revelation speaks clearly about battles that will happen. Even a, a very specific battle of which people will come to the nation of Israel. And there'd be no way that from a human standpoint, the nation of Israel should survive the battle. But they will. Because God will come to their aid. And I know some would say, well, that seems, that seems, that seems like that's pretty far out there. Well, you know, the nation of Israel has existed now in modern days for, for 60 some odd years. Something that's about the size of the state of Vermont, surrounded by all of the nations that would love to see its demise. It's miraculous, not only how it came back together after so many years, but how it's been preserved these years as well. But we know that there are many nations that turn against. And I would even say that within our own nation, there's been a changing of heart towards the nation of Israel on a large scale. International conflict, natural disasters into verse seven and verse eight. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, again, we would say and we'd recognize that famines and earthquakes, these are not something that happened just at the very end of time because they've been happening for a long time. The question is, like the analogy of the birth pain, is it something that is becoming more frequent and intensifying? And if it is, it gives greater understanding of the day in which we live and is done for the reason of helping people to prepare. Sign four, verse nine, fierce persecution. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, did the early church face persecution? Absolutely. You all saw it last week in Brad's message. In Acts chapter 4, from the beginning of the church age, there was persecution. But is that persecution intensifying? Has it grown at a global level? It has. There are statistics about the numbers of martyrs that have happened in the 1900s and even in, in our century. And, and the, intensi- the, intensi- uh, the, in- the intensified uh, statistics show that, uh, that, uh, that the numbers have increased. 
And you can look at, at even organizations like ISIS. And, and who would have thought we'd see pictures of people lined up on, on sand uh, and then being beheaded for the name of religion. Yes, there is still a growing persecution. In fact, there was a column written by Kirsten Powers, and she recounts many instances of persecution, of the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. And when we lived in Greece, and we had people that, that came to our country, uh, to the country of Greece, from, from Iran and Afghanistan and from, from Egypt and from Algeria. And anytime there was an Arab Spring nation, we had people coming. And at the end of our time there, we had more coming from Syria. In fact, one of my, one of my colleagues was Syrian. And he was telling me the story uh, that she has recounted in this article. That the Christians of Syria... Being attacked by Islamic rebels, fear for extinction. Even in the historic Christian town of Malula, where many of its inhabitants speak Aramaic. Does that strike anything in your mind there? The language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic, still there, but being totally wiped out of the city and any any Christian uh, uh, church or, or institution being either burned down uh, torn down or repurposed for Islamic purposes. In her article, she even talks about an account where two people were captured and they were allowed to talk. They were It was a man and a woman who were engaged to be married and, and how somehow those that captured them allowed them a phone call and the man would be able to survive if there was a denial of Christ and they refused and he died. He would not convert to Islam and they slit his throat. It's interesting how she titled this article. It's a column called a global slaughter of Christians, but America's churches stay silent. That ought to that ought to that that ought to weigh heavy on us. That we think about what is happening and even 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 the news media carries some of the the persecution, but they certainly don't carry it all. But would we stay silent? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, she quotes in the article, who said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And Bonhoeffer, of course, grew up and lived in the time of Nazi Germany. And gave his life for speaking up against the atrocities. The fifth sign, verses 10 through 12, widespread apostasy. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And Jephthah says in his book, these verses paint a picture of unprecedented religious apostasy. Apostasy means falling away from the truth. They especially apply to so-called Christian leaders who depart from the Christian faith. Who, in the name of religious unity, deny the truthfulness of the Bible, 
deny the necessity of Christ's death for our sins, deny the virgin birth of Christ, deny the reality of eternal hell, and deny that those who die without Jesus Christ are lost forever. They turn away after fads and popular social causes and pander to the powers that be. They support abortion, the redefinition of marriage, and the right of pornographers to practice their evil trade. They do not preach the message of Christ's salvation because they do not even believe the gospel. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, end quote. That's the kind of apostasy that the Lord warned us about. And I know we look at the list and say, hasn't this been happening for 2,000 years? How can, we, how can we speak of the last days before His return? As I said, no one can know the time or the hour, but we have to ask ourselves, is the tempo increasing? Is the, uh, is the intensity getting stronger? Did you notice the, the analogy that was used there in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8? What was the analogy? The birth pains or the birth pangs. So while all these signs are in every generation, they do increase. Now, the analogy of the labor pains is one that, that would be a little dangerous for me to try to, to, try to, uh, to explain in any great detail, right? You know, thankfully, I've never said something like, oh, I'm hurting so bad. This must be what labor's like. I, thankfully, God spared me from ever making that comment. And uh, I would encourage you guys not to make that comment either. But the ladies could tell us about the intensity of, of uh, the pains of birth. They could talk about contractions being more and more frequent, the pain being more and more intense. And so that's the picture that Jesus gave of the world. Yes, these things have been happening, but are they getting more intense? Are they happening more frequently? Is it, is it giving us the, the picture that the Lord may be, may be coming soon? The Apostle Paul gave a list in 2 Timothy 3. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now again, all these passages speaking of the last days, we would, we would be wise to heed them and to consider them and to look through the lens of Scripture at the events of our day. He went on to say, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This is what happens when a people turn away from the Lord. And as I draw your attention back to the statistic of the nun, those that have no religious affiliation, there is a, a walking away from the Lord, a rejection of God and His Word, which leads to a moral collapse and a breakdown of society. In fact, Al Mohler described the three stages of a moral revolution like this. What was condemned is now celebrated. What was celebrated is now condemned. And those refusing to celebrate are condemned. Do you see that in light of any issues that we see in our day? So how does the church respond 
to the condition of a nation? How does the church respond in a day like today with the intensity of what is happening around us? Well, I think the first word that comes to mind is the word repentance. Because we know that we, we too, as a people, need to repent of sin. It's one thing for us to have a prophetic voice to the sins of a culture, but then ignore the voice to the sins of the body. Meaning church body, church people. Because we battle sin as well. And so we need to think of our own repentance. We also need to think of the lack of influence that we are currently having with the gospel into this nation. And so, yes, we should repent and we should call a nation to repentance. One by one, family by family, opportunity by opportunity, proclaiming the truth of Scripture that people would have an opportunity to respond. In the book of Second Chronicles, familiar passage in chapter seven, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance, a turning. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Maybe you've heard of the familiar story of Abraham Lincoln sitting in the Oval Office at the White House during one of the darkest days of the Civil War. One of the cabinet members said, I do not believe there is anything to worry about. Speaking to Lincoln, God is on our side. To which Abraham Lincoln turned around in his chair and said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My great concern is to be on God's side. And that's a word for us. In our role, our prophetic role to speak to the sins of a nation. Today, the church must not lose its prophetic voice. I keep using that phrase because I think it's important. What did the prophets do? They spoke, not just what was in the future, but they spoke and interpreted the days in which they lived. And we've been given that opportunity to speak prophetically at what is happening. And in doing so, we bring God's word into the equation. The church must not lose its voice, yet it seems that we can be easily silenced, easily pressured. Easily stigmatized to the point where we get silent. And is that the right response in a day like today? To be silent? To not speak up? To not say anything? A.W. Tozer said a scared world needs a fearless church. But I'm afraid that the church of America, including its clergy, have been fearful. I was given a book. That I brought to the pulpit with me here by James Garlow called Well Versed. And uh, he's a pastor in uh, California. And he, he has, uh, it's, it's really, it's quite incredible all the topics that he covers. But he gives the example of whether, or what it would have looked like if, if pastors in other time periods or if churches in other time periods had been silent. He said, what would have it been like to have ignored the horrific suffering and mistreatment concerning slavery in the South in the pre-Civil War? 
What do you think? Should the churches have spoken to that? The churches that did speak to that, were they right? Of course they were. Civil war. He goes back and even thinks about slavery. Is it? was taking place in in England and thinking about the work of William Wilberforce. Maybe you could even even go back into World War II because we mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Was he right to speak about the atrocities happening in in Nazi-controlled Germany? Was he right? Should have he been silent just as not to offend? Of course not. What about in more... After that time, when when we see the this, the the civil rights and the, the 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 racism that was so rampant during the days of Martin Luther King Jr., was he right for speaking of the sins of a nation and racism? Of course he was. But what would have it been like if he had remained silent? That's that's Garlow's point. And he says in the book on page twenty three that. That oftentimes the church, in an attempt to remain neutral, stays silent on critical social issues. And he says, our hope isn't in a political party. And he quotes a guy named Sammy Rodriguez, who says, our hope is not in the donkey or in the elephant, but in the lamb. And as we put our hope in the lamb of God. We know that it should influence us in the way that we interact with our culture. And even the the civic responsibilities that we have. One of the reasons why I wanted to share this today is not only because of all the examples of, of what's happening in the moral and spiritual collapse, but to know that we're also, as a church, as a people, preparing for a very important election. I don't think it's the time for the church to be disengaged or the church to be silenced. And I'm not telling you how to vote or who to vote for, but I would like to tell you that I believe that it's our responsibility to look at the issues in light of the Word of God and to know what the candidates, and I'm talking local, state, national, what do they stand for? What do their affiliations within their parties stand for? The platforms. We need to know the biblical principles. We need to be informed of the policies so that then we can be a part of of helping bring about change. Just as we have these examples of others who brought about change. And I get it. I get it that this would be one that would be very tempting just to sit out. Right. I think that that every 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 four years. We, we, we collectively look and say, is this really the best we can do, right? It's such a great nation. Is this it? But this is what we've got. And we can't disengage just because we don't have perfect people. Each candidate has moral and ethical failures. And it's literally dominated the, the coverage. And I know it can be discouraging, but it's not a time to be disengaged. If we, as believers... Don't pursue morality and virtue in our nation and in our culture. Who will be the ones that speak? Whose voice will be heard? We must realize the importance of the election. 
including the impact on things such as the nation's budget, its policies, its judicial appointments. We must be informed and involved and not sit on the sidelines. So the soul of, a, of, a, of our nation has been exposed. And we didn't just do this today. You've seen it exposed for quite some time. A moral and spiritual crisis that I think helped connect the dots for the unraveling that is happening. Again, predicted by our Lord as part of the last days, but not ever given as a reason to not care or to not assist or help. What if people in the days of slavery or the days of, 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 of the racism of the 60s or the days of, 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 of Nazi Germany would have just stopped and said, well, Jesus said it was going to turn out bad. And just step back. Things wouldn't have changed. So, so yes, maybe things that we've talked about concerning the unborn, concerning morality, concerning marriage. Maybe these are things that we can continue to have a voice in. We should indeed wait for the Lord, but we must also keep working and keep watching. James 5 verse 7 says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the fresh, precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Live in light of his return. We wait, we work. From Matthew 24, we looked at this chapter earlier, but not this verse. Blessed is, this, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And we watch Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And let me be very, very clear. Yes, the days are dark. But church, this is our time. If we have ever seen a, a generation that needed the hope of Jesus Christ, if we have ever seen a culture that needed the gospel to give moral clarity, to give hope of salvation, to save and rescue from the bondage of sin, this is our day. And it's a day to be engaged outside the walls, not just in. It's a day to be speaking, yes, an understanding about things within morality, but also things that deal with spiritual truth. And what it means to follow Jesus as Savior. What it means to repent of sin and have hope and assurance of the heaven that you and I have been singing about today. That others could join that chorus and that they will join that eternal chorus that we will all be a part of someday. Well, let me close with Matthew 5.16 as a challenge and charge for us today. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Adrian Rogers said, the late Adrian Rogers said, it is a time to love. Don't let your heart become a headquarters for hate. This is an opportunity for us to show what pure religion is, to show what the grace of God is. 
Even as people in the name of their religion slaughter innocent human beings. Let that be the dark background against which the love of God shines brightly. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we come and we recognize that you are sovereign. We know that our hope is only in you. But Father, we recognize that as a nation and as an American church, we have strayed. We pray, Lord, that you would help repentance to be genuine in our hearts, but also in the soul of a nation that desperately now needs you. You are the only hope for individuals, for families, for communities, and for our nation. And so now, Father, together we pray for our country and we pray that we would turn to you and that you would heal our land. God, we pray for those who are in leadership, both currently and those who will be in future leadership. God, we bring them before your throne of grace. Father, we pray for our church that we can be people of salt and light. That our light can shine brightly in this city and in this part of St. Louis. And as you give opportunity to the uttermost parts of this world. For we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.